On Wednesday of this week, President Vladimir Putin sent two Russian fighter jets to the Baltic Sea to harass a U.S. Navy ship that was positioned there. I don't know how many of you guys saw this on on the news. They did a number of very aggressive maneuvers. They were not armed, fortunately, but a number of very aggressive maneuvers in and about the ship. One plane flew within about 50 feet of the ship's deck, risking lives, of course, on the ship and the pilots' lives as well, all to display the superiority of Russia, the power and superiority of this man, this president, whose ego, whose hubris is beyond compare. Uh, I don't know if you saw this last month, Kim Jong-un of North Korea fired two short-range ballistic missiles into the sea. Then he fired two medium-range ballistic missiles into the sea and fired another one this week, defying UN sanctions against him and the country, all in his pursuit of developing nuclear weapons, weapons, long-range nuclear weapons, and to develop them against his number one most hated enemy. Do you know this? The United States. Presence in South Korea and, of course, the United States as a whole. There was a, a parade in his honor in his nation last fall. There's a few pictures. One um, correspondent was able to attend last fall. It's a very secretive nation. But in this parade that was held in his honor and orchestrated entirely by him, more than a million military personnel marched before his throne paying homage. It's a country where obedience is demanded. It's required. And obedience to the king, the king who is treated like a god. Today, we're going to turn to a story, a 2,500-year-old story, an empire with a king who is just the same. He will go to any lengths to display his splendor and his glory and his power and his authority. You will be struck by his incredible riches. You will marvel at the scope of his kingdom and his ability to rule it, and you will be left wanting, wondering what in fact is going to happen next, wondering who is really in control, wondering the same things that we wonder about our world today, about Putin and about Kim Jong-un and about China and about ISIS and the future of the United States, wondering the same kinds of things that we wonder in our own lives about, is God really there? Does he really care? And can he be trusted? This is an elaborate beginning to what will be an incredible story. And I want us to turn there because I want you to see how the author sets the stage. I'm in Esther chapter one. Of course, I'm picking up where Lloyd left off last week in a new series. Esther's after Ezra, Nehemiah, then Esther. If you hit Job, Psalms, you've gone too far. Esther chapter one. Kicked off a new series last week. Uh, Lloyd did the inter- introduction. And, and if you weren't here, um, you need to go listen. Go watch it or listen this week. He, he sets the context for the whole of the book, the historical context, an overview of the story, the overarching themes. And those things will be very beneficial to you as the foundation for all of the story as we work our way through it. Please go and see that. This is a historical narrative account. These are real people, real events. We've got lots and lots of information about this empire and this king 
in history. Historians have done great work around this king. This is set in the citadel of Susa. That is the winter palace of a king named Ahasuerus, his winter palace. And, and the Jews in the nation are, have been exiled. They are in Persia because they've been exiled from their homeland. They've been there many, many years, centuries, in fact. And, and some have just had the opportunity to return to Jerusalem. These, this story is set in Persia with the ones, the Jewish nation who has chosen to stay in Persia. And this is how the story begins. Now, as I read through it, I, I, I want you just to notice all the things that are true about the king, his actions, his character, his life. Make some observations about that in your own mind. And I'm going to ask a few of you just to shout them out when we get done. Okay, just make some observations as we go. Okay, verse one. Now, it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa from the greatest to the least in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. And Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. We will see much more about the queen in the coming weeks. Now, what, what did you notice? Just, just shout these out loud where I can hear, hear you. What, what did you notice about the king? This is Bible study 101. What did you notice? Materialistic. Materialistic. What else? Narcissistic. Narcissistic. What else? Proud. proud. My gosh, he's proud. Couple others. What else? Say it real loud. Rich beyond compare. I missed one. Anything else? Powerful, and he likes to party. He does like to party, doesn't he? I'm going to put these in three categories for us. Think, three things that are true about the king and his kingdom. And then we'll look at why this is so important to the story. It's interesting, this story. This story is an absolute page turner. It, it, it flies. It's just like it turns, it twists, it goes, it's fast, except for the very beginning. And we have this very extravagant, elaborate, detailed beginning. And we'll see today why it is so important. Three things that are clearly evident about this king. Number one, his 
riches, grandeur, and splendor are beyond compare and on display. I'll repeat these if you want to get them down just a few minutes. Number two, he is totally and completely in control of everyone and everything. And number three, he is greater than the greatest and greater than all. Here's three simple phrases to capture this. This is about the king's glory and the king's kingdom, his government, the king's government, and the king's greatness. Glory, government, greatness. Let's start with the king's glory. His riches, grandeur and splendor are beyond compare and on display. This is the party to end all parties. He's invited all of his leaders, all of the satraps and all of the leaders within the provinces and all of their wives to join him in Susa. Historians say this was about 15,000 people at his party. 127 provinces, they're all expense paid trip to an all-inclusive stay at the palace in Susa for how long? For six months, six month party here. This is absolutely incredible. It's, it's six months, well, well, or at least until the king decides that he's gonna invite the whole city there in Susa and continue the party for seven more days, right? Because this hadn't been enough. We got to do a little bit more. This is bigger than Kim and Kanye's wedding, I think. <laughs> Curtains made in the finest linen, purple, because it was the hardest to get, the most rare, the most expensive uh, linen that was hanging on, on, uh, on rings of pure silver against luxurious marble columns, couches made of pure gold and silver. I don't know how many couches you have. This was seating for 15,000 of your closest friends. Silver and gold. I try to think of a way to put this in context for, for us. I'm not sure that this works, but I just imagine it this way. What if we took all the metal, all the platinum, silver, and gold, and whatever metal that we have in this room on our rings and bracelets and necklaces and whatever else we have, even all the, the Claire's metal, whatever that's made of, that just we put it all in and, and we melted it all down and we did that in this service and the next and the one before and the one last night and two at Franklin and one later this afternoon in, in Green Hills. What if we took all that metal, we melted it down, how, how many couches? think we'd have? How many? A love seat, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I don't have any idea, but it's certainly not this, is it? Gold couches, which don't even sound comfortable, by the way, resting on precious stones. So we take all the diamonds and the other jewels out of our rings and necklaces and bracelets and, and we take those things and we make that the floor, okay? And then we drink out of golden goblets, golden wine glasses, the royal wine, which did not come in a box, okay? <laughs> this is old wine and wine that does not run dry. There is absolutely nothing in the text, no fear of the king who thinks that a 24-7 party with wine for everyone, as much as they want to drink, will ever run out over six months, I'd like to see his wine cellar, wouldn't you? Gosh, why all the intricate detail, why? Well, it's so that every person would know that King A is the man, that's why. He's the man, 
The author intends for us to be impressed by the magnificence of this king, and we are. His riches, grandeur, and splendor are beyond compare and on display. Number two, the king's government. He is totally and completely in control of everyone and everything. And there's a very specific example of this in our text, and the author intends it to show us the bigger picture. This is an example of the greater picture of just how controlling this king is, and it's found in verse eight. So look at verse eight with me. Here's what it says. The drinking at the party was done according to the law. Whose law? Whose law is it? King's law. Drinking was done according to the king's law, and there was no compulsion because the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. The king gave orders that each person could drink freely. Now, I want us to think about this for just a minute. It's the king who orders, who makes a statute, who decrees, who sets the law for when you can drink a sip of wine. You tracking with this? The king says drink, and that's when you drink. Nobody moves a muscle apart from the king telling you that you can move a muscle. Only in this case, there was no compulsion on this particular occasion, meaning you didn't have to drink when the king said drink because the king said there was no compulsion on this occasion. Tracking? Now, there was compulsion on other occasions. In fact, it was the norm that when the king said drink, you drink, the king drank too much, you drank too much. The king raised his glass halfway and then started to tell a joke. You raise your glass halfway and you laugh at the joke. And then you're not sure when the joke is over, so you're just kind of doing this number throughout the whole joke. That, that is the hyper control of this king. And why was it that way? Because that's the law of the king. And if that's true about a sip of wine, you can imagine his rule throughout the kingdom. King A, I'm not gonna say Ahasuerus throughout the message, King A is in control. So the king riches, his grandeur, his splendor are beyond compare and on display. He is totally and completely in control of everyone and everything. And number three, he is greater than the greatest and greater than all. King A was the most powerful man on earth. He was the most powerful man to have ever walked the earth to date. His empire stretched between the two extreme boundaries of the then known world. 127 provinces was from Sudan to India. Do it this way so you can see it on the map. Sudan to India from Eastern Europe to Russia. This is his kingdom. 480 million people over three continents. Dozens and dozens of nations, ethnicities, languages. It's an incredible kingdom, largest empire the ancient world had ever known. And it was, in fact, an empire so vast that the sun never set on it. Always somewhere that the sun was up. Incredible. The greatness of King A is hard to overstate. And he lived in an era where these kings too were treated like gods. Everyone everywhere knew the king in his glory. Everyone everywhere knew his riches and his power. They worshiped him as if he were a god. They actually called him a god, esteemed and honored him as 
such a has you wear us was greater than the greatest and greater than all. Listen to what his tombstone reads. It's been uncovered, found. And here's what it reads. I am Xerxes, that is his Persian name. I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of all countries, which speak all kinds of languages, the king of this entire big and far-reaching earth. I know some arrogant people. Not quite as arrogant as this guy. Splendor, control, and power that had never been seen before. Not one thing missing from his extravagant kingdom. But there is one person missing. Uh, No mention in this chapter or in the entirety of this book of God. No mention. 192 times in 167 verses, we see King A. God, zero times. But it doesn't mean that he's not in the story. In fact, this story, the author veils God's presence, but he does not remove it. This story beckons us to look behind the veil and see the greater reality. We have all this detail about the king because the author is setting up the contrast between this king, King A, and the greater king. We'll see this throughout the book. Between the king and God. And I'll say this even now, the silent one is the more powerful. The invisible one is the more glorious one. And the one who is not even mentioned is the one to behold. Two kings, story of the visible, temporal king, the story of the invisible, eternal God, the contrast between the little K king and the king of kings. So I want you to go with me and we'll look behind the veil. Okay, we're gonna look behind the veil. And I'll keep the same three categories. Here's the first, the glory of the greater king. Here's the glory of the greater king. King A had more silver, more gold, more land, more possessions than any before him. And yet the greater king, Jesus Christ, he owns it all. Not just King A's stuff, but it all. Listen to Psalm 50. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. The world is mine and all it contains. King A paved the temple or no, the palace court with precious stones. The Lord Jesus has paved heaven for us with golden streets. Now I want you to imagine this. Over the course of human history, just till today, there are billions of Christians, billions, billions of Christians who will walk or drive or fly the streets of heaven. That's a lot of gold, more gold than 15,000 couches or thereabouts. A lot of gold. King A threw a party for 15,000 for six months. Jesus built a city for billions for eternity. King A was generous with his riches, but only to glorify himself. Jesus was lavishly generous with grace. His life for yours. 
He throws two incredible banquets. Jesus offers two of his own. One is today. It's the banquet meal that we call the Lord's Supper, where pardoned sinners are invited to come and commune with the greater king. The bread and wine, it, it flows, not for the sake of a great party, but symbolic of the body of Jesus Christ broken and his blood poured out for our salvation, the greater king. A, a, a banquet that is a foretaste of a banquet to come, the wedding feast of the lamb where the bride, you and I, his church will be united with the groom. We are impressed by King A, no doubt, but we stand trembling in fear and in reverence of the awesome glory of Jesus Christ. The glory of a greater king, the governing authority now of a greater king. King A gives orders to control the actions of his subjects. He gives orders to control the actions and every action of all his people. Jesus Christ is in control of all things at all times. Sovereignly governing all of human history and everything in this world does it to his glory and for our good. King A's laws were meant to manipulate and to shame and to subdue. God's law is intended to direct us to Jesus Christ so that we might be justified by the law through the fulfillment of it in Jesus Christ. The reign of King A is measured in days, months, and years. The reign of Jesus Christ cannot be measured. It's infinite. It's universal. The stars, the moon, the sun, all the planets and all the universes and all the galaxies, all of it. It is at his beck and call. He has authority over all kings, all nations, and all languages. He does. Prophet Isaiah says the government will rest on Jesus's shoulders and it will have no end. King A was, the text says. Jesus Christ is and forever will be. Uh, third category, the king's greatness. This is the greatness of the king of kings. King A was powerful. Many on this earth bowed to his authority. Jesus Christ made the earth and the heavens. There is no compare. Jeremiah 10 says, by his power, he established the world and everything in it. And of course, Paul says in Philippians that every single knee will bow to him. Uh, King A ruled from Sudan to India. The rule of Jesus Christ does not know geographic boundaries. Uh, listen to the psalmist words in, in Psalm 2 about the greater king. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth will take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that is his son, saying, let us tear their fetters apart. Let us tear them apart and cast away their cords from us. Cast them away so that they are no more. And we, in our arrogance, are the only kings left standing. And God, who sits in the heavens, laughs. 
He scoffs at them. And he says, I have already installed my king. It's over. My son, the nations are his inheritance. The ends of the earth, his possession. He shall break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. Now, O kings, take warning. Now, Putin, take warning. Kim Jong-un, take warning. China, ISIS, Obama, Clinton, Trump, take warning. For all will bow and pay homage to the Son. Worship the Lord with reverence, rejoicing, and trembling, lest you perish in the way. Everything about King A points to the incomprehensible greatness of Jesus Christ. He is greater than the greatest and greater than all. Okay, we've looked at the passage. We know something of King A. We've seen behind the veil to the greatness of our God. And now now we need to turn the spotlight on ourselves, okay? What do we take and do with this? Well, I think two things. I think the author is inviting us to consider two things here. Repentance and worship. One precedes the other. Repentance is first. And here's why I think he's inviting us to repent. Because there's a little King A in all of us. That's why. Something in us that wants to be the king. Something in us that wants the glory. Something in us that wants to be our own God. And it's so easy for us to trade the king with the one that is right here, isn't it? Perhaps that's what happened to the Jews in Persia. They had not seen any tangible demonstration of God in a very, very long time. They had been in exile for a very, very long time. And, and, and so maybe these ones that stayed in Persia are going, what's the use in going back to Jerusalem? Cities in ruins, the temple is empty. There's no sign of God anywhere. Maybe they've just learned to coexist with the Persians. They've adapted into the culture, the flow of the culture. They've, they've simply joined the party. Maybe that's what they've decided. You know, the same can be true for us. Because we can't see God, we, we choose to believe that this is all there is. And, and when we believe that this is all there is, we find that the culture is powerful to take us in its flow. We just jump in the river. We blend in. I can feel that tug in me. And, and that tug, those steps can be very subtle, can't they? The way the culture just woos us continually pecking away at the edges of our hearts. There's a little King A in all of us. I don't know what it is for you or what it looks like, how it comes out, the ways. Maybe it's the ways that you need to be in control. You need to control things. Your life, your kids, your whatever. You need to be in control. And so you pay so much attention to the trivial that you lose sight of the eternal. Or maybe it's the, the way that you try to selfishly manipulate relationships. Manipulate? Yeah, manipulate's a strong word. You selfishly try to steer relationships to your ends, to your good. Maybe it's your pride and mine. Maybe you love money. Maybe you love power. Maybe you love influence. Maybe you just simply love comfort. 
Maybe you are so committed to self-sufficiency. That's the little king in you. I, I don't need God. I don't need him at all. Maybe it's that you're trying to prove yourself through your intellect or, or, or through your accomplishments or your achievements or your knowledge. Maybe that's it for you. Maybe it's vanity. It's beauty. It's body. That's true for women and men, by the way. Maybe it's how hot your girlfriend or boyfriend is, you think. Or maybe it's the appetites of your flesh and temptation. Whatever it might be, Jesus Christ is inviting us to repent here. To repent of the ways that we try to replace him and make ourselves, put ourselves in his place. Uh, to repent of the ways that we consider ourselves so important. We, we take ourselves so serious and we don't take him serious enough. Trying to be our own king. Do you know where that leads, by the way? It, it leads to an insatiable lust for more always. So I am my own king in these ways and I want more kingdom over and over. Insatiable lust for more because what is, is never enough. And, and I, want to, I want to give us a minute right here with repentance to go before the Lord and, and express our own. The places where we try to become the king of our life. We'll, we'll do that repentance first and then we'll step to the second worship. But I want to take a minute right here, right now. And would you go before the Lord? I'll guide us a little bit as we pray, but go before the Lord and consider the places you try to be king and need to repent and turn from it. Ask the Spirit of God to expose your need to control. What things in your life do you try to control? Try to control because you don't respect his authority, his control. Ways that you use relationships to your good. Ways that you display your own greatness. None of us would ever act like this king, I don't think. But we do try to prove our worth to others. Ways do you demonstrate that? Our pride, our self-sufficiency, our self-importance, just this air of self-importance, where does that show up in you? Vanity. I would argue that we all are vain in some way.
Maybe it's temptation in the ways that you succumb to it. You know, repentance is very simple. It's to name those things before the Lord, to declare your desire to turn from it and to ask for his help. And when we do that, any sin in those areas is wiped away. We're free. We'll do it again. We'll repent again. It's okay. When we repent, it reveals who we are before him and it prepares our hearts to see the greatness of him. There is a gap between God and us, but that gap has been filled by Jesus Christ. And so we rest in him. Repentance. And now worship. King Ahasuerus is dead and buried. His bones are dust. He is no more. No rule, no reign, no power, no kingdom. But Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, conquered death in the grave. His dominion has no end. And we are citizens of his kingdom. Blessed with every spiritual blessing that he offers, a storehouse full. Adopted as sons and daughters in his name. Redeemed by his blood in the riches of his grace, Paul says in Ephesians. Longing for the day, the day that we will relish in his splendor and glory and majesty. He is our king. He is a better king than any and every king. He is the king, the one true king, the one who is high and exalted and seated on his throne even now. Ruling and reigning over all nations, all peoples, all languages, in all places and for all time. He alone is worthy of our adoration and our praise. One author I read this week said this, every party that's ever been thrown, every celebration that's ever been enacted, every time people had, have gathered seeking to honor someone, it was a faint, hollow, shallow echo of what we were made for. Worship. Worship of the one who is greatest of all, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you as we close to stand with me. You guys go ahead and stand up. We're going to sing. And I'm going to ask us as, as we worship, not a king or emperor or whatever he's called in North Korea, not that one. As we worship, I'm going to invite us to with one voice on the basis of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to sing out our praise. For he is the one. He is the one true king. The one behind the veil 
will forever be visible in eternity. He is reigning now. So would you lift your voices with us? Give me eyes to see more of who you are. May what I behold still my anxious heart. And take what I have known and break it all apart. For you, my God, are greater still. And no sky contains, no doubt restrains on you. The greatness of our God. I spend my life to know, and I'm far from close to all you are. The greatness of our God. Give me grace to see beyond this moment. And to believe that there is nothing left to fear. above it all. For you, my God, you are greater still. And no sky can taste, no doubt restrains all you are. The greatness of our God, I spend my life to know, and I'm far to all you are, the greatness of our God, to all you are, the greatness of our God, there is nothing, there is nothing that can ever separate us, there is nothing that can ever separate us from your
you come in contact with, as you see with your physical eyes, would you pause for just a moment and peel back the veil and take but a glimpse of the greater King. Go in reverence and worship this morning. 